Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. On this episode, we are inviting back Stephanie Nichols, who we first met on the episode 10 of season one. She was caring for her mother at that time, had discovered our podcast, and was using our keys in real time to try to change her experience. Her mom died earlier this year, and we are reconnecting now after several months to see how the journey went. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Thank you so much for joining us back again, Stephanie. I really appreciate you being so honest and coming on to share your story. And we're both, you know, really sad to hear that your mom has passed away. And so thank you for allowing us um, to to relive some of that, but to also share um, some of the insights that you've learned along the way with our listeners. Well, you're welcome. You're very welcome. Yeah, yes. Stephanie, you were one of the early people we interviewed um, after we dropped the podcast episodes about the waiting room revolution. And you were one of the first family members that took it for a whirl. And so we were really interested after the passing of your mom to find out more reflections from you as time went by. How long has it been since your mom passed away? Almost um, nine months. She died on the 15th of January. Oh, I keep thinking it was longer than that. How do you feel? Good. There are days when it's like, oh, geez, it's still like surreal that she's gone uh, because she was convinced she was going to live indefinitely, even though I knew she wasn't going to. Still, she hid so much of her decline that it was kind of um, a shock. It's been a while since episode 10 of our season one when you first joined us. So can you remind our listeners what your mom was facing? Uh, Somewhere around 2010 or 2011, might have been 2011, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And uh, the diagnosis came after she went to the hospital because of pain and found out she had a cyst that ruptured. And then three months later, when she had surgery, something else ruptured during surgery too. And she learned it was ovarian cancer. They had hoped it was just a cyst. So somewhere between those two ruptures, she got ovarian cancer that got little tiny molecules in her body. And after chemo and everything, she was great for 10 and a half years, nine and a half years, I guess, because in the fall of 20, she had a PET scan because of um, something totally unrelated, but she had a PET scan and the radiologist noticed some spots on her lungs. That led to uh, in January of 20, she had surgery. And um, then in the fall of 20, uh, they noticed more spots. So it had returned. At first, the surgeon told her no, surgery is not an option. And um, the oncologist said that they would do surgery. And because I had listened to all of your waiting room revolution series, I was so armed with my questions. I was ready to go. I asked amazing questions of the oncologist, but she didn't answer any of them. She just kept dodging my questions. And it was so frustrating. Um, So she reacted poorly to the chemo 
So she had the main ingredient of the drug combination removed uh, after two sessions. After three sessions, they did the midway through checkup and her numbers were not much better. So I questioned, why are you continuing? But she was going to anyway, I'm gonna keep living, I'm gonna live. Um, after her chemotherapy finished and we met with the oncologist face-to-face, -face, yes, we could actually see doctors <laughs> during COVID at this point. Mm -hmm. And I challenged the doctor because I said, I don't understand why you continued for the second half of this sessions when her numbers didn't improve very much. Oh, I would never do that. Well, then she went and checked her numbers and yes, indeed, there was so little progress mm -hmm. that really it was futile for my mom to have gone through all six sessions. Um, at that point, Sammy, you told me your mom has less than a year. And I said, yeah, I do know that. Mm -hmm. But my mom still went ahead, the surgeon changed his mind and he, um, did two surgeries on her. On the opposite lung, he did another one where you go in with the camera and just uh, the little small incision. And then in August, he removed her entire lower light, right lobe. And she wanted to do this because she was convinced and didn't want to hear otherwise that her life was going to be shortened because of a serious life-limiting illness. She was just gonna live forever. So in a nutshell, there's where we are. She died of ovarian cancer in her lungs. So Stephanie, we're really sorry to hear about the death of your mom. Um, if you're open to talk about this more, we are always trying to improve things, especially early on in the illness story. So in your mom's case, it would have been at the diagnosis of her recurrence. So I'm curious if our work, our seven keys, which is available in our podcast, but also on social media like TikTok and Instagram. Were they helpful to you in any way? I wish your, Sammy, that your um, TikTok series had mm -hmm. been out there while my loved one was suffering mm -hmm. through her journey, because I have to say that those are phenomenal for mm -hmm a lay person to be able to uh, via a link on Instagram, like this whole social media, I think is exploding for the two of you. And your podcast series is the main conduit, but all three um, avenues, the Instagram, the waiting room revolution through the podcast and the TikTok, they all go hand in hand. And I wish I had been provided with that backpack of knowledge for the two years of my mom's journey. And therefore, as people who are facing similar situations, it's there for them now. And that's great. Mm -hmm. So that's a great endorsement. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, she was uh, um, a person who was faced with a lot of decisions at different points of her illness, where um, she had to take stock of what was important to her and the information that was laid out for her and should I go for it or not go for it? And uh, do you think that in the end, look, if your mom was to look back on the way she called the shots throughout her illness that she did it her way? I do. There's, there's one area where she didn't do it her way. My mom had been very insistent from January of 21 when the cancer reappeared for the second time in her lungs 
she said she wanted to do medical assistance in dying. So made. And she talked about it. Even in the summertime, my sister came from across the country. And she didn't at that point even talk about signing the paperwork. It was brought up and it was like, oh, down the road, down the road, down the road. And then push came to shove when she started not feeling well and her decline was so rapid, she missed the boat on all of that hmm. uh, because it was Christmas holidays. And so in that regard, it was not her own way, but otherwise, I hear stories of people whose parents um, are dying of a form of cancer who have like months of lying in a hospital bed in their house and incontinence and nursing care all around. My mom was really sick for two weeks and each of those days declined. And it was kind of shocking to me because she called me on New Year's Day and I had just seen her on the 28th of December. And she said, like, you've got to come because I can't breathe. I need oxygen. I said, mom, you're just stressed out. Like you're, you're working yourself up. And well, no, lo and behold, every day thereafter, she just deteriorated and deteriorated more and more and more and more. Um, so yes, it was her way for the most part, because it was fast. And she sheltered her loved ones, which is something that she wanted to do, obviously. Um, it is not the path I wanted. I had said to her for months on end, let me reach out to Dr. Winemaker um, because she's a palliative care doctor. My mom was a nurse and her family doctor was fantastic and essentially did palliative through um, her relationship with my mom and was essentially her palliative care doctor for the most part. Um, but she, my mom kept saying, oh, back when I went to nursing college, palliative care was for people who are like really dying and just purely end of life. And she would not understand the new thing of palliative care that it is for the duration or whatever part of, of a person's journey that physicians with this specialty are able to assist and provide psychological and emotional and physiological assistance. And that wasn't open for discussion until the very, very, very end. I mean, the good news is, is that her family doctor stepped up and just saw it as part of her role to provide this kind of continuous, comprehensive palliative approach and meet your mom where she was at. Um, oh, and so 100%. She, she the family way. doctor was fantastic. Yeah. But as her caregiver, it wasn't inclusive if I shall say, because I wasn't in that loop. Yeah, yeah. It was between the two of them by her choice. Mm. So therefore, again, although I knew she was ill, I didn't realize how ill she was because she was guarding herself and keeping it kind of close to heart. There were a few times over the course of the fall of 21 where she said, oh, I wish I was feeling better. And my response every time I didn't think of, oh, well, that's because you're dying, mom. I said, well, mom, you had two major surgeries. You had chemotherapy. You've had a lobe of your lung removed. And justifying her being short of energy, whereas not realizing, you mm -hmm. know, she's dying. And I remember you said that you listened 
to the podcast early on and you encouraged your mom to listen and she listened to a few i'm not sure how far she got but she it did encourage it did sort of spark um maybe some conversations that you that might have been hard to have otherwise and so um i'm just curious what you think your mom's impression of it is because it sounds like maybe she did have some of this knowledge and it was her, her part of her doing it her way was to be the main person to lead the information which well, yeah. because she had a medical background, she knew what was going on. And when she started listening to the podcast series and stopped, it's because it was highlighting to her the severity of her illness and that she was in the final stages of her life. And she found it easier to disregard the truth and just live on hope. And because of her her medical training she knew what was going on you know I would say someone like your mom will you remind us her first name Joanne Joanne that's right someone like Joanne is not in denial though just for for clarification like denial with a big d Big D denial is when honestly, you really actually don't think you have it. Um, But small D denial is a coping mechanism where, you know, you have something, you pretty much know what you have, but the way that you want to face it or can't face it, it, it's a way of avoiding looking at it because it seems too big and monstrous. And so denial with a small d buys people time to actually begin to adjust to facing something huge like a huge loss so um it it is a very distinct coping mechanism um, that allowed your mom to live large because like you said she couldn't reconcile this old-fashioned way of thinking about palliative care and a more modern way of thinking about palliative care and because she thought it was just the Grim Reaper stuff, this small D denial allowed her to, to put it somewhere in her brain, but still honor who she was and what she liked to do and her vibe and her mojo uh, without feeling like she had to roll over and die. It's just too bad that, you know, still to this day, we have so many people thinking that the word palliative or facing, um, you know, the more advanced stages of life means that you have to give up something because you can face the uh, advanced stages of life, but not have to trade off something at the same time. It doesn't, um, being planning and being proactive does not have to offset hope and wanting to still be you this is where my mom's reality of those final two weeks when she was sharing in her own silent way that she wasn't feeling well the doctor um, started talking to her how do you feel she said awful absolutely awful so I interjected and I said now my mom knows how lung cancer acts in your lungs can you tell me if ovarian cancer in your lungs acts the same way? Because she says she feels like she's drowning in her lungs and absolutely suffocating. And he said, yes, indeed. That's exactly what it's like. And then they discussed results of a lung capacity test that she had had just before Christmas. So three and a bit weeks before, and it was very low. And 
I thought, holy wow, but geez, it was only 22 or something percent then. And I know what she was like on that day that we were talking to him. And so she said, well, what's the next step? He said, well, get your doctor to call a hospice. And her brother and sister-in-law were like, oh my goodness, we just came here for lunch. And now we're being told that like she's in her final, 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 final stage of life. So um, once, she, once she came to grips with the fact that she was dying, then it was a very, very fast process. And um, yeah. accepted all help from everywhere. You know, she, um, she lived large and then there was a tipping point. Um, so she lived independently calling her own shots, socializing, which was really important to her. She was involved in so many different things. I remember you telling me Joanne was, had a lot of friends. She had a lot of interests and, you know, she lived large when the tipping point came, the saving grace is that it all unraveled over a span of two weeks, basically. And what you're saying is where before that tipping point, she really didn't want to talk about it much. And you said she was in denial. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was denial wasn't the right word. She knew exactly what was going on. Yeah, she knew what was, but she decided to play it out a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when she realized that she had, she got to some line in the sand, like some of my patients, all of a sudden, they're willing to talk openly about it, they organize things, they um, accept things, they start saying yes to things, they start, you know, it's really incredible, just when you think the person's never going to accept any help, suddenly, (laughs) they realize, okay, I'm in over my head now. And so Mm -hmm. she was able to adjust on a dime. Oh, she was. And it was interesting, because on the the Wednesday, again, the same day before she died on the Saturday, um, home care called and they asked if she wanted a hospital bed. And so I said, yes. And she said, no. Mm-hmm. And interesting because the night before she had, or she had told me that the night before she hadn't slept because mm-hmm. she couldn't breathe that night. So here I was thinking a hospital bed would be good for her. She could be sitting upright, whereas she knew the time is so short that there's probably no need to be organizing a hospital bed because I'm really not going to be here for very long. And again, I didn't trigger into the fact that her time was so short. Do you know what though? It's not um, uncommon for people when they're the last descent is so quick like I would say my father had a very quick descent as well. The faster the tipping point to death happens, like the shorter that period of time is, the harder it is to mobilize yourself physically and also emotionally and mentally that that's what's happening. Um, My father, we thought he had 18 to 24 months and he ended up from diagnosis to death in less than two months. And it was a scramble because we weren't expecting it, even though we knew at some point based on his cancer that he would die from it. His tipping point to death was so quick. Um, and, And that's not typical. It is more typical that someone would months before those final two weeks 
would have exhibited evidence of decline where they were slowing down, getting more tired, sleeping more, slowly needing more help with life, slowly needing more help with their personal care, not socializing as much. Like the decline is usually spans months, not just two weeks. So this is why you felt like it came out of left field because it really did. It came out of left field. Yeah, in, in my mom's case, my sister, my mom and I had been away in November for three weeks and she was doing water aerobics at her own pace, but doing water aerobics every morning. And then six weeks later, she wasn't with us. And it's like, wow. So whether she masked her situation or whether the decline was as fast as it was, I don't, I don't really know because in retrospect, there are things I think of that uh, I would call at 930. Oh, I'm uh, just sitting in my chair reading the paper. Oh, have you had your breakfast? No, not yet. That that wasn't typical for my mom. She yeah. was up at 6.30 in the morning. So there were the signs. I guess I probably just didn't see them the way I should have. But um, Well, that's interesting, right? Because uh, hindsight yeah. can be 2020-ish. She didn't want you to see all that. Oh, so no, don't worry no, about it. No, no. Oh, no, I'm, I don't fret about it. But there's no question. She um, she wanted everybody to think everything was fine and dandy. Once, yeah. once she told in person her two grandchildren, one she had spoken to on the phone a few weeks before. But then that it was as though that was her line where she could then let herself go the way nature was taking her rather mm -hmm. than fighting it any longer. And mm -hmm. then I also have to say the night before she died, my mom spoke for an hour, my mom and I, um, to her family doctor. No sooner did we hang up than we spoke to you, Dr. Winemaker, for an hour as well. And after both of those, something went wrong that evening. And then later on that night, something else went wrong. And um, it was as though the permission of it's okay, you don't need to keep doing this, um, settled in in her brain. And then the next day when she actually did die, she, she was in a, a comatose state. Um, it happened immediately after my sister talked to her on the telephone and gave her permission, like, mom, you know, I'm coming on Tuesday, but don't hang in. Like, don't hang on there because uh, it's your time to go. And as soon as my sister said that, my mom let herself go. And uh, so it was very methodical. Again, as you say, Dr. Winemaker, it was uh, her way. It was, yeah, it was her way to do it. She was, she was kind of calling the shots. So do you know what? I remember also being on the phone with you in those final days. And I was, so first of all, your mom's situation was also unique in the sense that from a symptom perspective, she actually did really well. Um, she was not plagued by symptoms until her final couple of weeks where she really declined and she became more breathless. Um, so that was the one symptom that needed to be really managed. Uh, and again, because it came on quite quickly and you know things were changing quite quickly, I was absolutely amazed that you did not send her to the hospital. So how is it possible that given how out of left field this felt at the time, that suddenly you move in with your mom uh, because she's taken such a turn. Um, she's highly symptomatic with breathlessness. 
How did you pull this off at home? Well, probably because I really didn't think it was going to happen as quickly as it was. I also know she did not want to go into the hospital. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so for those, once I heard on the Wednesday afternoon that she was down to her final few weeks, um, I just thought, well, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be here and I'll be with you. And my sister's intention was to fly in from Vancouver Island and we were going to do it together. And um, it ended up, my sister wasn't able to be there, but I don't know, you do what you need to do. I, I'd been showering her for the course of that week and it wasn't comfortable for her. She was cold and even sitting on the, 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 benchy chair thing she wasn't mm. comfortable so and my mom loved baths so the day before she passed I gave her a bath and we had made plans we were going to do it again in a few days because she could just soak and and so she I don't think that she thought there was going to be the triggers there was some medical incident whether it was heart attack or stroke or don't think she thought those were going to take place that she still would just continue to decline and decline and feel awful um, because her plan was to have the, the medical assistance in dying. And um, so I don't know, you do, you do what you do for your, for your mom. Stephanie, can I ask you about one of the keys, specifically walk two roads, which is hope for the best and plan for the rest. I mean, did that play out in your story? That for sure resonated with my sister and I, even though my sister's halfway across the country. With my mom, it did, yet she still was hopeful that she was going to live five to seven more years. As time went on, she became more realistic and adjusted her length of wishful thinking. But yeah, um, yeah that definitely was very clear that she was not going to have her head in the sand. She was going to continue to be hopeful, but was very informed, as informed as she could be. And the other key that Sammy and I both see often is zoom out. That's the idea of knowing the big picture of your illness, the different bus stops along the way, which is distinct from a timeline. But it's about getting the bird's eye view of the storyline of your illness and sort of like a roadmap for you. So I guess my question is, did you feel like you had a roadmap? that's where I think I was more in tune with reality than my mom wanted to be mm -hmm. because at several stages of the final year of her life, my sister and I both said, you do have options. Let's try and get more answers. No, no, no. I'm going to do this. I'm going to live and it's my choice. Okay. It's your choice. There you go. Um, so kind of a, there was a flip-flop at some point because I knew in the spring and in the summer that her time was limited and then when she started feeling worse in the fall that's when I was making excuses for her as to why she wasn't feeling well whereas my mom did the reverse because she was the person in the body living the situation um, but mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we were both in tune, just in our own different ways. So you both had an idea of what the big picture and the long view were going to look like, but you dealt with it in different ways. Yes. And, Which and her, her hope was 
purview was going to be longer than what I knew reality was. Yes, and I think more so that way, right? That, hey, if life is good, you want to keep living it. Mm -hmm. She was struggling with hope for the best plan for the rest. Uh, she, did. she, she wanted to be she more hopeful. But until, she until the final, until the final, I might even say three weeks. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't until one, exactly one week before she died, when she started saying, to her grandchildren when they were in her house here what do you want to take mm. and she said to me on january 1st and 2nd here these items from christmas you should return these mm. until then there wasn't any indication from her so she was mm. still hoping for the best um yeah at that and then you said that trigger line that that line in the sand she'd reached it and as soon as she did then that's when she started showing the actions that uh, she certainly accepted that her time was limited um this is a good segue into the third one which is know your style like really know who you are how you operate how you face things or not be true to yourself if everyone understands that people have patterns to them then we can um, understand how they behave in a journey. So the various needs that people have, like Stephanie will be one way and your mom will be another way and how their footprint of who they are has been set years, years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Did knowing your style play out in, the, in this situation? Um, yes, because I stepped up and I, helped her as much as I could when it was needed. But um, I also did, which I would do from time to time, gave her a hard time when I wasn't aware that things were as serious as they were. And so that was typical of my mom and I. We had a wonderful relationship, but neither of us hesitated if we thought that the other was outstepping their bounds. And so I had kind of thought she was outstepping her bounds of her expectations on me mm -hmm. um, because my timeline had become tainted and had become, um, I'd become disillusioned uh, because I mean, maybe I'd just listened to her for so long that, oh, I'm going to live, I'm going to live, I'm going to live. Um, but an interesting part of my mom with the whole knowing her style and knowing herself. Uh, my mom was an avid card player and she played in a few card leagues in the community where I lived. And she said to me a week and a half before she died, she said, you know, I can't play cards anymore with them. She said, first of all, I can't grasp the cards and, and it's, it's too hard for me. She said, but also I know it's uncomfortable for all of my friends seeing me not being able to function the way that I normally do. And that was very typical of my mom. She was always very aware of other people's feelings and thoughts, so. Mm -hmm. So, so many ways that know your style um, bubbled up in the journey. Oh, in many, many ways. Your dynamic with your mom really didn't change. It's how you oh, two drive no. together and then mm -hmm. describing, you know, how your mom made decisions and what you were like in your role. You both were true to yourselves. Oh, very, very, very true to ourselves for sure. So we don't have to go through all the keys, but you did mention your mom playing cards. 
and that was important to her enjoying her life. And so I just wanted to point out that really connects to the idea of customizing your order, right? The idea of knowing what's important to you and bringing that forward and using those as your as your reference point, those values as your guide for your decisions. So I guess if there was a question there, it would be, did your mom, do you feel like your mom was able to customize her order? Oh, no question. And uh, my mom had made comments that uh, her friends found it uncomfortable uh, seeing her in the situation she was in when they were playing cards with her. And they didn't say that. She interpreted that. Whether it was rightful or not, that was her perspective of it. And uh, one thing that all of her friends did say is as her illness became more and more um, severe, she wanted people around her more and more and more. My mom had worked for a long time and didn't stay at home for only the final few years of her life. And she was constantly calling people, oh, come over for a drink, come over for a drink. And particularly in her final six months of life, um, that, hey, be around me. Hey, let's socialize a little bit more and not let's get up and whip all around the place, but just, hey, come over for a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was part of her changing and her friends changing too, and family. And as family, we were certainly there a lot and stepped up and did whatever we mm-hmm. could. Okay, so if we take a big picture approach to the seven keys, again, it's basically about um, this idea of to date, we worry that too many patients and families take a very passive role when they get a diagnosis and they take the back seat of their journey. We can use whatever metaphor we want um, and tend to put blindfolders on. They get swept up in the conveyor belt and the positivity and the hopefulness and end up at the very end of an illness feeling bamboozled, uh, not recognizing themselves. Um, what, can you give us just some thoughts about what you think about this idea of a passive illness journey versus one where the patient and family feel more empowered and activated and expected to um, be more in the front seat? Oh, I think the passive route does not benefit anybody at all it probably leads to a lot of surprise, disappointment, um, frustration, words not being said, hugs not being given. Whereas Mm -hmm. the proactive, uh, take your journey in your own hands and have control of it and be informed and know the answers, uh, it's a much better method to do it because a serious, you refer to these terms all the time, a serious life-limiting illness, we do know that there is going to be an end. And if the end is going to be soon, far better to know that than just keep thinking, oh, it's going to be down the road, it's going to be down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, because honesty is the key. And and if I can say, like in your series, and I don't even know what one of your podcasts it is, which one of the the um steps it is but you discuss how with pregnancy a woman knows every single week and then day of her journey of pregnancy 
what to expect. And I know there are books, what to expect when expecting and all these different things. And that this information exists on the medical end for diseases, mm -hmm. that it would be really nice if what you're advocating comes to be, comes to fruition. And mm -hmm. that as the general population, inner circle people, caregivers, and those who are ill themselves are given the luxury, the advantage of knowing the truth of what lies ahead. And mm -hmm. I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing so that people can know this information. As I said earlier in the podcast, through your TikTok episodes and through your Instagram and through your uh, waiting room revolution, you are mm -hmm. enlightening people. You are giving them a gift that's out there to mm -hmm. be received by people because this medical information exists. Mm -hmm. Give us the opportunity to know what's happening. I know at minimum, of course, we agree with you, Stephanie, but at minimum, people should know it exists. And whether they want it or not, that's a whole other discussion right. but but we shouldn't pretend like it doesn't exist that that the fact that all of our lives are going to come to an end um is you know a shocking surprising event it, it it's as predictable as it is that we're going to go through puberty and menopause and for some pregnancy uh, these are all stages of life where we expect to um be proactive or in the know, or we know that those chapters exist so we can decide for ourselves if we want to, how much we want to be in the know or not. When it comes to dying, we've done a pretty good job as humans of pretending like that very normal human stage of life won't happen to us. And if it does, it'll come like a light switch. And so it is, it's a crazy thing. Uh, that that we don't have more information available to people or that we don't uh, we're not more open as a society about the fact that this is going to happen to everyone um right we as a society are really kept in the dark as to the truth about illness and and dying my father had parkinson's and i knew okay that's not a good disease and i knew that he was going to continue getting uh, sicker and sicker and sicker, but nobody ever told us a timeline or how the illness was going to unfold. It was just, okay, yeah, one day he'll be in a nursing home and one day he'll die. But other than that, we really didn't know anything. And well, so I can I, tell me if this makes sense. So when you, can I reflect on your father's situation for a second? So I, I, I would guess that your father faced Parkinson's for somewhere between 10 and 15 years, uh, that over that period of time, is that true? Yeah. Okay. Over that period oh, yeah. of time, uh, he was on multiple medications to try to help keep him um, as physically well as possible to control the symptoms of the Parkinson's, but it was a fine line because those same medications can cause other problems like um, uh, behavioral issues, confusion, hallucinations. So there's always, he probably had years of fine tuning his medications and the medication got probably more complicated over time. His case of Parkinson's was 
very, very severe in comparison to, to so many others that mm-hmm. um, I've witnessed people with Parkinson's. But yes, exactly what you're saying, that the, the confusion, the dementia that went along with it, the physical decline, the yeah. mental decline, the emotional decline, yeah. uh, all, everything spiraling downwards, the inability to to feed himself, to just do the everyday parts of life that one expects. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so there's a roadmap for that too. There's a roadmap for that. Yeah, and we could go into more detail, but what I was going to prove to you is that I could describe, generally speaking, except for those unique pieces, what a Parkinson's journey looks like and the big decision points that need to be made, like um, go, like who's going to take care of me when I can't take care of myself anymore, who's going to be my gopher, who's going to be my personal intimate care provider, where's that going to happen at home, uh, in, a, in a nursing home, what's going to happen when I can't swallow um, as well. Uh, what about if I get rigid and I can't move as well? What about when I become bedridden? Like all of these things are not not decisions that you want to make in a crisis. Um, but anyway, it's not just society, like you said, um, Stephanie, that uh, is lacking the realistic information um, because we're a death denying society. Doctors and nurses are only human too. And we're part of this death denying society and our training um, makes it worse because we're convinced as doctors that we can fix everything or prolong everything, or there's always something in the cupboard for everything. And so we are part of the unintentional charade. We're born as humans into a death denying society. And then we get trained as doctors to be even more death denying. Um, So it's a perfect storm, really. And that's what the waiting room revolution is trying to um, blow out of the water is like, take the mask off and let's be real. And I think that you've created some real shockwaves through the system. And I, I, I hope that the momentum that you two have created will continue to grow and grow and grow and and that this little tiny pebble of a snowball will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and um, keep educating people and enlightening us to reality and truth. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stephanie. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsak.